Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children and youth through adoption, foster, and kinship care. Hosted by an adoptive mom with over 22 years of kinship and adoptive parenting experience, she's on this journey with you. Please welcome Sandra Flack. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to Him and He will direct your path. That is Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, one of my favorite portions of scripture. I'm your host, Sandra Flack. Thank you for joining me today. I'm excited to bring you another adoptive mom guest to talk about educating our children. But first, be sure to check out my special series of episodes with Dr. Jared Brown. Dr. Brown specializes in trauma, FASD, autism, forensics, and traumatic brain injuries, among other things. I am recording a series of episodes with Dr. Brown focusing on topics of particular interest to us foster and adoptive parents, such as prenatal trauma, adverse childhood experiences, attachment, and so much more. Regular episodes of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey drop into your inbox, onto your device on Mondays, but these special episodes with Dr. Brown will drop on Fridays. So you won't want to miss them. They'll just all be in your episode lineup, but the ones with Dr. Brown will be noted as bonus episodes. So make sure that you grab a notebook and listen to those because it's just going to be a ton of information and practical application. Also, super excited, if you are an adoptive or foster parent or caregiver of an individual prenatally exposed to alcohol or other substances, whether they're diagnosed or not with any type of a a disorder such as FASD, be sure to check out all of our resources on our website specifically for this parenting journey, including our new Hope for the FASD Journey Support Community, led by myself and the amazing Natalie Vecchione of the FASD Hope Podcast. To check out all of the resources and to sign up for the virtual uh, online community support group, visit justicefororphansny.org, and then you would click on training at the top of the page, the training tab, and then the drop down. you'll see it'll say FASD, click there, and you will have access to all of those resources. We will also put a link in the show notes so that you can just click the link and find them that way. All right, now to today's guest, Kim Scarborough. Kim is a homeschooling adoptive mom of four kids, three with an FASD. Please welcome Kim Scarborough. Hey, Kim. Hey. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah. I'm just so excited to hear your story today and have you with us. Uh, Four kids joined your family through adoption. Would you share with us why you and your husband adopted? Sure. Uh, We knew before we were married that we could not have any biological children. So after we had been married three years, we decided to pursue adoption. And our first child joined us uh, right before our fifth wedding anniversary. his little boy, uh, we picked him up from the hospital at three days old. We had found um, a Christian agency and had been in their domestic healthy newborn program. And so that's it on that one. So three days old, right from the hospital, Um, met the birth mother and the birth grandparents and started our journey that way. 
And then we knew we wanted another and we weren't sure of how long we would have to wait. So we got right on the waiting list. And 22 months later, we had a baby girl. And we also picked her up at six days old. And these were, I guess we would call them semi-open adoptions where we met our daughter's birth mother also. But then we were across the country, so they were not open after that just because of distance. So we had two little people and in there we started homeschooling, but we can come back to that part. And then we moved across the country and then thought, well, we might like to do this again. So when those two were seven and five, we adopted a little boy and he was three days old, I think two, maybe four days old, got him as a newborn. And he, the first two appeared to be pretty typically developing. The third one appeared to at first, there wasn't anything known wrong, um, but had some atypical development later on. But I can come back to that. And then when he was five years old, we, well, really when he was three years old, we decided to adopt one more. But it took us two years on a waiting list because we already had three. And so we waited and prayed to see if God wanted us to have another one. And he did. So when the first three were 12, 10, and 5, we got Mr. Number 4. And he was in the NICU. So we got him at 3 three days old, and he did have some known things, some substance issues, some trauma, um, but he was discharged as a healthy, healthy newborn. The NICU, there wasn't, they just put him in there from some maybe heart concerns, but it really wasn't anything. So he was discharged um, I think we brought him home maybe on day four um, or five, not long. And so that's the story of how the four came to be. And I can tell you their ages. So now they are, just for reference, they are 25, 23, 19, and 13. So for 25 years, I've been an adoptive mother. And for 25 years... 20 to 25, a homeschooling mother. Yeah, I want to get to all of those things, but I'm kind of curious because I know I know that, you know, maybe not diagnosed, but I know that there is um, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder kind of woven into your story. So at what point in your parenting journey did you learn about FASD or you started suspecting it? When did that come into play? Well, I knew about it. Um, since my oldest was born at 25, I knew there was a thing. And I, what did we call it 25 years ago? Fetal alcohol something. I don't know. The name keeps changing. But I knew there was a fetal alcohol thing. And I had asked people and I, no, no red flags from friends, professionals, doctors, adoption agencies, nothing. So... Um, and I, I didn't see too much to no pediatrician said anything. So I always wondered personally, but nobody said anything. You know, there wasn't anyone to go to. Who would I go to to find out? So I didn't learn until about six years ago when I was introduced to Karen Purvis and there was an Empowered to Connect conference a mother, uh, another homeschool mother suggested I go to, which I did. And then I was like, oh, this makes sense. But that was coming from like the trauma 
piece of it all. And it all comes to, it all blurs together in my mind, but it's only been in the past six years, I'd say. And also then Stephen Curtis Chapman did his work and had his conferences with the show Hope. And I think they keep, the name keeps changing. But then also we had a local group ministry called Replanted and they did a big conference in Chicago. And they, then they also had workshops and they had one of these conferences, Ira Chasnoff did a whole one day workshop. So that was really good. So I think that was probably my start into the fetal alcohol. And then at those conferences, I learned about Mike and Kristen Berry. They were there and read their book, Born Broken, and some of their other books. And then somehow I also found The Long Way to Simple. And that was very helpful. And then I had not been on Facebook for 20 years due to because having adopted children, I didn't put everything out there on Facebook. But then I wanted to do a homeschool conference that was on Facebook. It was right when the beginning of COVID. So I got on Facebook and that is where I found Natalie Betchion. And that changed a lot of things because I learned about all this FASD. So she told me about Diane Malbin and facets and then she told me about Eileen Devine, and I did a class, my husband and I, together, did her nine-hour class. And then I just finished a facets training with Wendy Brown that we did this spring. So it's been a lot in the past three to six years. I would say three for the FASD, six for the trauma trying to unpack everything. And then also as my daughter got into high school, she and I both love psychology. So we, she did her own research and she found books like The Primal Wound, The Body Keeps the Score and other things which we would read and discuss together. And what's a little sad is that The Primal Wound came out in 1991, which was when I got married. So 30 years ago, but I didn't know about it until you know, my daughter told me. So it's just a little sad that there were these resources out there um, that I didn't know about. So I feel like I'm kind of playing catch up uh, with things. Yeah, I, I feel like I have been on a similar journey because when our first child came in that we did eventually adopt, it was a kinship um, adoption. So she came to live with us in 1999. We already had three biological, biological children, but I didn't know to go look for books or resources or anything. I didn't know anything about childhood trauma. I didn't know anything about any of that. And just traditionally parented her, which was disastrous. And then after we adopted our first, we adopted three siblings internationally. And then in 2010, we brought home the youngest sibling and he was the game changer. A lot of my listeners know um, our story, but he was the one that came in 2010 and um, just changed it all, right? Because we were, you know, recognizing the fact that he was five years old and we just were ill-equipped. We did not know what we were doing because he was, you know, he had experienced childhood trauma and was prenatally exposed. But we found out about the trauma piece first, like you did, because we um, somebody recommended the Connected Child book, Dr. Purvis's book. Then we went to a couple of Empowered to Connect conferences, and we hosted some of the virtual ones. And, and that's kind of where I started getting some information about FASD. And then um, and my son got, my, my two youngest boys got diagnosed by a developmental pediatrician but it was, here's your diagnosis, have a nice day. There were zero resources offered to us or recommended. Um, so it's like, I knew this thing was out there and probably had a lot to do with, you know, or something to do with what was going on. But we hit a wall when COVID happened and we're on the verge of a mental health crisis. And I found myself thinking, is this, you know, trauma? Is it because he was adopted? Is it attachment? Is it that? fetal alcohol thing? Like what is going on? And the answer, you know, yes, it's all of it, you know, the perfect storm of all of it. But that set me on a journey to dive into the one thing I knew least about. And that was 
fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And Natalie Vecchione was a huge um, blessing in my life as well, because she and I were friends and had been on each other's podcasts all along anyway. But she pointed me to Diane Melvin's book and then she told me about Dr. Chasdoff's book and and uh, facets and you know now I'm just about at the end of my facets training to become a facilitator so we can start offering classes to parents and professionals um, and you know it's just kind of come you know it's just it's been a journey of growth in that area but when you don't know you don't know and then like you and I just spent a whole hour talking about all these things that we discovered you know, along the way, you know, now we know and we see it everywhere. Um, but until you know, you're, you're like our eyes are opened now. So I'm curious, Kim, what were some of the symptoms, the FASD symptoms that you were encountering at home? You can, you know, you can give it list wise or however, but what were some of those things that you were dealing with that you maybe initially didn't realize was due to prenatal alcohol exposure? The first things I noticed was when I took my oldest two to a music class, when I see they would have been like three and one and we signed up for a little music class, you know, supposed to sit in the circle and the class was for my son, the three-year-old. And uh, instead of sitting in the circle, he crawled around the outside edge of the room under the chairs that were there. And my daughter, who was just there as a sibling, actually sat in the circle and did the class. Now I was like, hmm, this is kind of weird that this is happening. But I, I didn't know what it was. Something was, but he was fine most of the time. He was an auditory learner and he, I, I read to him a lot. But now I know that was a sensory thing. Like he was on sensory overload. So that's one of the first things that sticks out in my mind. Um, and then with my third, things were more, a little more severe. The third child had surgery on his eye when he was three. He did not meet the developmental milestones. Well, I already had two, so I knew when they were supposed to do things, but he did not have the core muscles to sit up, roll over, those kind of things. He did not talk until he was five. Um, my first did not talk very much until he was two or two and a half. But, you know, that's not, and he was a boy, so that's not a big deal. I mean, he did talk a little, but, you know, um, but five, that's long. So at three, I knew something was up. So I asked the pediatrician, can he please go to a developmental, or, or can we do something? What, what does one do if one needs to do something? Because, you know, I've been a mother for seven years now, plus I, this is not, something's not right. So she sends me to the developmental pediatrician and this is in Chicago. And so not a small town, big hospital in Chicago, the developmental pediatrician a direct, assesses my three-year-old and tells me, well, some people just become trash collectors, just grow up to be trash collectors. And I was like, okay, well, thank you for that. So there was no diagnoses, no nothing. You should do this, try this, test this, nothing. This is just how he is. I wouldn't worry about it. Okay, and I brought him there because he wasn't talking or anything. You know, so they suggested speech therapy. Um, but that was it. So there we go, home um, with nothing. So I was, you know, it just made me think, who, who do you get help from? Because... This, I thought this was like the top of the line and this is Chicago and it's not helping me know anything about what's going on. So I waited, he talked at five, he read at 10, he drives, he works. He, so he gets there eventually. He's just on his own timetable and he has needed some surgeries, um, which is in line with the, you know, FASD things. And it's all on the left side of his body. You know, then the fourth, it was known that he had, had been exposed to things. 
but nobody called it anything or did anything or said you should read this or know this or expect this. So I still didn't know. I just know, knew he had been exposed in what weeks and things. And he, de he developed fine normally. And then he has some ADD. So his characteristics would be ADD, anxiety, um, those kind of, he had, when he was younger, he had some tics, uh, but they kind of went away. It's probably anxiety. So all four children had different things. And then my skip the daughter, she was very smart, gifted, intelligent. So I just kind of had her do her own thing because I had these boys to deal with, but come to find out she had, would be a, like a, a 2E person where twice exceptional, where she has very high intelligence and gifting, but also has challenges like anxiety, ADHD, organizational executive function kind of things. Um, so as they say, no, no FASD person is like another, just like ADD or autism. So they're all unique, different, and um, it was just helpful to me and enlightening when I was able to understand what all this was because I went into it with a traditional parenting mindset. Like adoption was just another way to build our family. It was, you know, it's one way to build a family and we were just going to build a family like this. And so you would just do traditional parenting with this family. And then we found that that does not work. And then in the home educating the same way, we would just did home education like others might do in a traditional family and found out that wasn't the best fit either. Um, so the non-traditional, no wait, the traditional parenting led to us having secondary and tertiary characteristics in the olders because of all the things we didn't know. And I learned those things in the, with the Diane Malbin materials where the younger were uh, able to do things differently and, you know, avoid going down that path because yeah. no better, you can do better. That's right. Absolutely. So just um, for our listeners who might not be familiar with the secondary and tertiary um, symptoms, can you can you just list a few of them? I know there's a whole bunch of them, but I know like the anxiety and depression and relationship problems and school problems and all of those things kind of come secondary if we keep trying to do traditional parenting and traditional educating with individuals with a neurodiversity. Yes, I think that would be the secondary list. And then I think the tertiary list is when then when they have trouble with the law and trouble in society, um, when they when their needs are not met and and things it grows into bigger things because. Um, yeah, I think it's just because their needs are not met. Yeah, we keep trying to force the round peg into the square hole yes. and it becomes very frustrating for the kids right. um, and it just exacerbates this, the primary characteristics into the secondary and tertiary. Right. So if they can be accommodated on the first level, then you don't get to the second and third. Then you can avoid the anxiety. Like when we talk about School, if we can, so since this is about education, if we can accommodate them in the school setting, then they don't get the anxiety and then they won't run away or, you know, do something extreme or hurt themselves or a third level because we've stopped it more on the first level where I didn't know that at first and I stuck to my rules. Like I just thought, well, you can't get away with this. You know, I have to be rules and discipline and this, which just leads to more anxiety and then more problems. Yeah. For now, I know to accommodate that this is, well, it's not, is it a question of can't 
or won't. And I used to think that they won't, they, you know, do it. But now I understand it from a brain-based lens where they can't do it. And so I can accommodate, I can help, I can come alongside. And when you reframe things, reframing has made all the difference for us. When we can reframe, then we know how to help them better. Yeah. And when we look through that lens of, could this be a brain thing? Can my kid do, can his brain do what I'm asking him right. to do? Right. So that's, I mean, I love that you're, you're talking about that. Um, Kim, are, do any of your kids have an official FAS or FASD diagnosis? I mean, I know FASD is technically not a diagnosis, but um, do they have any kind of diagnosis in the, in the fetal alcohol we don't. Category? Yet, we may pursue that, but because I'm just finding out about this, um, we don't. So now I'm going to look into that, but we don't so far. Yeah. Our stories are similar because our oldest who came to us when she was eight and she's now 31, um, we did all of that traditional parenting stuff with her which didn't work. It was disastrous. And we were, we were dealing with a lot of the primary characteristics. And then by the time she was a later teen and through her twenties, we were dealing with secondary um, stuff for sure. But then too, like you, as we went on and learned more, then we could start reframing and start looking at this through uh, a brain lens and making those accommodations and understanding that. Um, and that has made a huge difference in our youngers also. So you, you mentioned your kids are now 25, 23, 18, and 13. Is that right? So how are they all doing now? Like, what are they up to? Uh, they're doing well. Um, three have graduated, just graduated the third this year. Um, so the oldest is out on his own. And the second, the 23-year-old is my daughter. She uh, got married during COVID in a small wedding. She just had her second anniversary. She is going to college and studying art. And then my third that just graduated is working. And then I have a 13-year-old that I'm still homeschooling. My hope thing Takeaway is, uh, you know, they, we're in relationship with all of them. Despite our mistakes with the oldest, especially, we still have good, open, close relationships with all of them. So I'm thankful and happy about that. Yeah, we can repair, right? I know I've done a lot of work to really rebuild uh, my relationship with my older daughter because we had no idea um, what we what we were doing when we were parenting her um, and did, you know, probably more harm than good. But it does come full circle because as we've tried to do some of that um, TBRI, you know, connected parenting stuff and a lot of yeses and focusing on the relationship and all of that. Um, now, you know, just this past summer, um, she wanted me there when she gave birth to her first child. Um, and I was able to fly out and be with her for that and, and be there when he was born. And just, um, you know, really our, our relationship is the best it's ever been. Um, but she hasn't changed, right? It was me. I had to reframe and learn a new way of parenting and a new lens to look through and, and taking trauma and taking possible prenatal exposure into account. Um, and that's that's made a huge difference. So I don't think it's ever too late, um, but we can't look for our kids to change. We have to be the ones to learn um, and to make those adjustments for sure. And I want to get to homeschooling now because I know you've homeschooled all four of your kids. Um, what led you to pursue homeschooling? Because you've done it all along. So I'm interested to know, like, what what puts you on that course? Um well, I am a teacher and my mother is a teacher. So I come a little by it naturally. Um, my mother was a preschool and kindergarten teacher for 40 years. And she suggested that I be a music teacher. And I thought, no, I'm not interested in that. But that's exactly what I did. I became a music teacher and 
So I studied education and music and taught in public schools and Christian schools and private lessons. And because I was in the schools, I kind of knew what was going on in the schools, in public schools and Christian schools. I wasn't all that impressed. And that was 30 years ago. So I was in the schools. Then as newlyweds, um, some friends, this was so newlyweds before children. We had some new friends who had just had their first children and were home educating. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. So I hung out with her and got exposed to that. And I really liked what I saw because it was, it was individualized, you know, for her family. It had, you could focus on God. You could teach about God. Really, you could control things around your family's priorities. And I really liked that instead of just whatever, you know, the public schools were starting values clarification and things 30 years ago when I was there. So I thought, this is interesting. So she helped me learn about homeschooling and showed me, you know, there were different ways to do it. So my husband and I had a conversation about homeschooling before we even had any children. And he wasn't so sure. He, he wasn't sure about PE and computers and things like that, but thought, well, let's at least discuss it and think about it. So then when our first child arrived, we just naturally started into things. Like we just read books and played things and, you know, had puzzles and things. Um, so we just kind of naturally, there wasn't really a, a day or time that we started. We just kind of started from birth and um, kept learning and growing. So with the first two, being 22 months apart, I homeschooled them together. And then five years later, the third child came. So he was just a baby. So I just kept homeschooling the two and then he worked into the situation. And then five years later, worked the next one into the situation. But what I liked about it is that I could work with them individually. And we know that from history, tutoring is like the education of royalty. So, you know, it was just an individualized thing. So even before I knew they had any special concerns or needs, we were already building a relationship, talking about God, connecting with them, um, and just building a love for learning and an atmosphere of learning. And one thing that really motivated me was the fact that um, no one cares as much as I do. And no one is gonna do, you can't, what do they say? You can't pay someone to do what a mother will do for free. So because I loved these kids so much and cared about them, even though I made we made our mistakes in traditional parenting. I feel like being together for all those years of homeschooling really brought us close. Um, close together in our relationship. Now that we can still talk about things, reflect on things, all the books we read together. Um, do you want me to keep going on the I'm on a roll, but I can pause. I feel like I've got five more things in my brain. Oh, that's, and I'm sure you'll get to them probably because I think this question, the next question I was going to ask sort of, you know, flows easily into that. And, and it was really about your homeschooling journey. So how did you, and you've been kind of addressing that kind of since birth, um, how did you homeschool for kids with developmental disabilities? Because I know, I know typically, even neurotypical kids, parents will say, and I used to be one of these parents, I could never do that until God said, do it, <laughs> you know, and we began on that journey and we did it. 
um, it's never exactly easy, right? But um, then add in children with neurodiversity, um, you know, whether it's ADHD or autism or FASD or, you know, any of these things and, you know, kids with trauma histories like ours. So how do you homeschool? What has that been like? Um, you know, like what, what curriculums, what methods, like what has worked? What do you do? Okay. I would say uh, what's worked the best for us is a lot of read alouds. So my oldest is the auditory learner, figure that out right away. So he would sit still as much as I was reading. I, it was interesting to him. He could process through his ears. It was easier than him doing the reading. So I read aloud to him through high school. I was never sure if I was doing the right thing. You know, he can read, he could read, he can read. But um, as we discussed, it's a lot of work for these people to decode, to read, to comprehend. So I just kind of did a lot of things intuitively. I mean, I read a lot of books, but then I would just have to make educated guesses on what would work for these people. So I uh, just am an eclectic homeschooler, use lots of different things and whatever worked for each child, mainly the reading aloud because I could do it with all ages and stages. So I read aloud a lot to the oldest two then the youngest, you know, then the youngers would just fall in. They would just listen. They would just hang around, play Legos and listen. So whatever I was reading would apply to them. They could just catch what they could. So some specific accommodations, the oldest needed two math books per year to get it. So it was like we were talking about other podcasts, um, repetition. So I individually tutored the math and the first child's would just take him two books to get it. And then he would get the concept and then we would move on. I used a, a math curriculum that only did one concept at a time. So they wouldn't have to remember a lot of other things. But then I would use another math curriculum that mixed up all the concepts for review. So it would have some time, some money, that kind of thing. So that was, that's the one thing I remember. It took him, you know, several rounds um, I used instead of worksheets or tests, we used narration where they would just tell me back what they heard. So from five years old, you know, I would read them a story about whoever, Benjamin Franklin, and then they would just tell me back what they heard or they would tell their father at supper. So that, because the writing was what was hardest for my son to get the thoughts organized, to get him down on paper, to make his pencil work. That was too much for his brain. And that would be an FASD thing, but I didn't know that at the time. I was just like, this is too many things for this child. But his verbal skills were great. Probably from all that read aloud in conversation, because we were always talking. So he would narrate all the way through high school. I've used that as their, I can, like a test. Like I can see what they've learned, what they've assimilated, you know. So that has been an accommodation is just to let them use their verbal skills. And I've used that with all four of them. And then when my daughter went to college, she, the professor was asking questions and she was just shocked by the people that didn't know the answers or didn't say the answers because that had just been our life of we would just discuss whatever it was so that it was interesting for her to be in a college classroom. She didn't have any trouble. And like I just said, I skipped some of the writing things. I, I didn't require as much writing because that was just too much for them. So they can write, they can spell. Um, but we didn't do a lot of it. That was not their strength. So we just did workarounds, lots of workarounds. And as I said, we did things as a family. So everybody did Bible together, history together, literature together. And then I just did individual with the writing and the math. 
Now, my daughter was the opposite, so she could do lots of writing. So she just did writing on her own and tons of reading on her own. For their processing speed, see, now, now I can see all this in retrospect that it is FASD, but at the time, you know, it was just a thing, a challenge, a lagging skill. Processing speed was often slow, so I just gave extra time. I didn't have set times. If history was going well and everybody was tuned in and engaged, we might keep reading. If we were enjoying the chapter book, we would keep reading. I did not keep changing things a lot because that was the hardest for my kids to keep changing, all those transitions. So if we were in a groove, we would just stay in the groove. Um, they could process at their own speed. I uh, could modify assignments. And then another thing I learned more recently, the fancy word, but is asynchronous development, which was kind of just, I just went with the flow. Like they may be really good in something, but then have challenges in something else. So like in math, we might need two math curriculum per year, but in verbal skills, we would be, super high or in listening and auditory processing we would be super high so um we just went with that and now the fourth child is different so i'm having a whole new round because he does have more auditory processing challenges so where i read aloud to the first three it's going to be different i'm figuring out a different plan for number four because him reading himself is too taxing for his brain and his eyes, but also the auditory processing is challenging and tiring. So we'll be working on another strategy. Wow. I know we're always learning as we go also. Uh, Kim, did any of your kids have an IEP or get and get services through the public school? Did you have any kind of supports like that? Uh, we never did that. No, we discussed a little bit, but then we never did. Yeah. So I know, and that can be different for everybody. Like only one of mine when we were homeschooling was getting services. And then both of them, when they did a couple of four years in public school, got services. And then um, you know, and now my one who is still is back home homeschooling, he does get speech um, through the through the public school, but that's the only only service he gets. And he does have an IEP, um, which is good to maintain whether you're homeschooling or not, if you have one. Um, so I think everybody's weighs in a little bit differently with that. Uh, what, what would be your best advice? For families like ours, if they're just considering homeschooling and they're not sure if they're going to be able to do it? Um, well, I think homeschooling is a wonderful accommodation. Like I just said, all the ways that I um, accommodated because we can understand their needs, their strengths, um, their limits, and if we observe them and remove the obstacles and challenges, they can really um, thrive. And there was something I wanted to tell you about that I did. What um, we did that, um, let's see. I had this idea because when I was in high school, you know, we only had one free period to choose. And so I was a musician, so I chose band. So that was great. But because of that, I couldn't be in anything else. So another one of my reasons for homeschooling was that we could do lots of other things. So instead of just, I only have one free period, like our whole week was a free period. So I just made a little list of all the things we would with that we did that might be an encouragement. So this is over 20 years, but we did different co-ops, like five different co-ops at different times. We were able to do 4-H. My kids did art classes and they took art lessons. My oldest two did Irish dance together. My oldest three did band, homeschool band and marching band together. My daughter did choir. My kids each played three instruments and sang. 
they did sports, they did a worship team, uh, they did drama. My daughter participated in 11 musicals and my son participated in nine. And my third son spent his time volunteering and working because he likes to help people. We were able to travel and we were able to do lots of field trips. And the other thing I did was I ran businesses with each of my children. So with my oldest, he was a drummer. So he and I made a fife and drum band and we did parades and gigs with our fife and drum band. My daughter and I ran camps in the summer and we did a dance camp and a girl camp and an art camp, different summers. And my third child and I ran a bookstore and where we, sold, we bought used books at Goodwill and then resold them to homeschoolers. And then my fourth child and I have done a folk ensemble and a worship ensemble and had some classes in our house together where he was a participant, but also um, helped me facilitate it. So I say all that just to give you ideas of all the things that you can do. It's not just academics. These people need a lot of outside the box kinds of things. And so I kept in mind that we're, there's 365 days in a year. And if the state requires us to do 180 days of school, I mean, you have 365 days to get that done. So, you know, there's all kinds of ways that you can do it. There's all kinds of ways to count things. There's all kinds of books on unschooling, you know, and all these things can count in different ways. Um, and also my other thought is that education is lifelong. We think in the traditional box that they have to know all these things by 18, but if their brains don't mature till closer to 30, you know, what, what is the push before 18? Because they're not even ready to learn it then. So I think of education as from birth until we transfer to heaven. There's, you know, all that time we're always learning things. So to me, if they don't know it by 18, that's okay. They'll get it sometime. I learned the most by homeschooling in my 20 years of homeschooling. And then I watched my parents and when they were 50, my dad retired early, but they sold their house. They lived in their RV and they traveled around the country and they learned so much in that time. So they've never spoken to me about their high school classes and what they learned, but they have told me all about their years traveling around the United States in their RV. They drove to Alaska. They drove the, the route of Lewis and Clark they drove down the Mississippi River. They drove to a bunch of national parks out west. That was their education that they love, that they remember, that they tell back, that it's like fresh in their mind. So to me, that is just a living example of education. It's, it's lifelong. It doesn't matter your age. We're always learning things. And doing those activities for them just sparked all this interest you know you don't usually sit around talking about Lou and Clark Lewis and Clark but they were so excited because they had been there and they were so excited about Alaska so I think that's part of it it's just finding the things that they are excited about and if you can expose them to lots of things they'll click with something so I think that's my thing about education is don't think of it as books and workbooks and tests. Like think about it as a, a lifetime of learning. And like an, um, your other podcast guest said, for these people, sometimes education is just about managing emotions and regulation. So we have to see it in a whole different light. Our day might just be can I regulate my emotions today? And it also might just be, I am in trauma and we need to take a little break. Like we talked about in the other podcasts about de-schooling. 
we just moved across the country again. So we've had to do some de-schooling. We just had some downtime because that was traumatic for a 13-year-old to move across the country at that age and leave his friends and his whole life that he knew. So, you know, you allow time for that just to calm our nervous systems, to regulate our emotions, you know. Um, so I think we just need to think outside the box a lot. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Yeah, because you can't just, and I, and I was guilty of this 20 plus years ago when we started homeschooling, um, you know, our our neurotypical kids, I was initially trying to recreate a classroom at home, right? And I remember my kids saying, you said this was going to be fun, <laughs> and it's not. And over the years, I've learned that, especially now with, you know, kids with neurodiversity, um, I can't do because traditional schooling, just like traditional parenting, doesn't work. So we do have to think outside the box. And then it becomes fun and interesting and exciting and really just lifelong learning, like you mentioned. So I love, Kim, how you said that. So as we wrap up, what is on your heart that you'd really like for our listeners to know? What What do you want them to take away from our conversation? Any word of encouragement? Um. I would just say it, it can be done. We have really enjoyed it. Um, just have reasonable expectations. And you can build wonderful uh, relationships uh, with your children. Uh, through this, you know, through this time together, just uh, think, just thinking outside the box, and you know, keeping the expectations reasonable and relaxing. I think their brains are often flooded with failure and trauma, and just being different for them can be traumatic. That's something I've learned recently, and so just relaxing and enjoying the time together. And I'm glad, I'm really glad now that I didn't. I wasn't sure at the time if I was doing the right thing for my children. Um, but now I am very glad that I did it and have this relationship. And now I realized I was doing all these accommodations and I didn't even really know the word. I was just following my intuition and the lead of my child, you know, to try to help them to be the best they could be. And really I was accommodating. And so I'm glad that I did it. I guess my last thing would be to help them understand so that they can self-advocate for themselves. Because if they can understand themselves, so now we try to use this vocabulary in our house about self-regulation and those kind of things so they can understand. And so they can go out in the world and say, you know, I have an FASD, this is what it's like. I may need, you know, some accommodations and they can speak for themselves. So we try to put that into our time at home as well. Well, Kim, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, I know as a homeschooler and a mom of kiddos with FASD, it was very encouraging for me um, to hear, you know, and have this conversation with you. So um, thank you so much for, for being such an inspiration for us today. You are welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for all the work that uh, you have done to help us all out here to bring all this uh, encouragement, wisdom, guidance. I thank you for all your years that you have done this for our community. Well, thank you. I'm on the journey with you all. So it's my pleasure. Wow. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey. I hope you were encouraged and feel better equipped for parenting your kiddos with FASD, neurodiversity, 
you know, and especially if you are considering homeschooling or maybe you just started homeschooling. Um, it's just, I just loved talking with Kim and the other moms that I've been talking to this month um, about home educating our kids because, um, you know, I've gone back and forth over the years. I was a diehard homeschooler, um, would, was never going to do anything different until God said, you know, put these two youngest kiddos in school, which we did for a few years until that wasn't working. Um, and then I didn't think I would ever homeschool again, sold all of our curriculum um, and then uh, faced, okay, the best thing I can do for this kid is bring him home and homeschool him. It's an accommodation that he needs in order to be successful uh, and emotionally and mentally healthy. So that's what we're doing. And now I've kind of come back around like this works, you know, and we all have to educate our children. I, I, I'm, I'm a staunch believer in going before the Lord and asking him um, what we're to do, whatever, whatever the topic may be, including how to educate our kids. And um, way back in the day, my firstborn, you know, had a September birthday was not turning five until later in September. But everybody I knew sent their five-year-olds to kindergarten um, when they turned, you know, when school began. And although we chose a Christian school, I sent my five-year-old boy, um, who was not even five, he was still four the first few weeks of school, sent him off on the bus to school. And he really learned that first school year that he he learned he didn't like learning. Everything was a little bit harder for him to do compared to his peers. And then many years ago into my homeschooling years, I learned that compulsory age for a child to have to start their education is six. And I didn't know that you could wait until your kid was six to start sending them to school or schooling them. I thought you had to do that at five. And I realized that my little boy, you know, boys can be less mature than girls kind of thing. He was just turning five in September when school was starting. He would have benefited from being home that year and not starting until six. Now, it's okay. We didn't like, it wasn't a complete disaster because now he has a master's degree in business and accounting. But there was a time when he was in junior high, when I thought this child will never be able to go to school unless I go with him. And he was a neurotypical kid, but it was hard. Um, so we have to kind of, and several times, Kim and I both use the phrase, um, think outside the box, right? And that's what we have to do when educating our kids. And the traditional box is turn five, go to school. Um, homeschooling has always been one of those really outside the box things most people think they can't do. Although I think parents getting a glimpse of what was really going on in classrooms across the country during COVID started realizing many of us could probably do a better job at home you don't have to have a college degree in anything. You do not have to be a teacher or have a college degree as a teacher to homeschool your kids. And now that I am parenting children who are new with neurodiversity, mine specifically adopted and have trauma and have uh, were prenatally exposed to alcohol, so they have FAS, um, in many instances, homeschooling has been a much, much better fit for them. And while I don't fully regret putting my boys in school for the four years that they were in school, um, I'm seeing now that there were things that we could have really avoided um, had we been homeschooling all along. But I feel like I'm better equipped and I have a better understanding of that having put them in school for the time that they were in school. There's no one size fits all. We really have to teach to our child's needs, strengths, and interests. And many of us in the FASD world know that our kids have wonderful strengths and we have to make accommodations for them to be successful. Our kids are not going to change change. They have different brains. 
So we have to change the environment. We have to change what we're doing to help them be successful. And I believe that homeschooling is such an important and valuable accommodation that we can make for our kids. And you know what? It means who has to change? Usually mom, right? Um, in our home, I do the actual academic part of the homeschooling, and my husband does a lot of the life skill kind of stuff. Um, but because I have sons, you know, but it's worth the time, the sacrifice, and the investment because they're only going to be this young and at home for just so long, and we and and we have to put the work in and the time in now, or we could be dealing with more um, of those secondary and tertiary characteristics of FASD. Thinking of just our FASD kids, right? We continue to try to slam that round peg into the square hole. Um, it can lead to a lot of things that we could have avoided if we had made these accommodations that can be, yeah, I'll admit it's a sacrifice, but it is well worth the sacrifice. So I just want to um, just kind of share that with you and um, encourage you to listen to our next episode um, also with an adoptive mom who does some really neat kind of homeschooling. Um, be sure to check out the show notes for this episode so you can find links to our adoptive foster and kinship parenting resources, uh, including my FASD 101 workshop, which is available online or in person. Uh, FASD 101 is a 90 minute training about FASD for parents. Uh, you can sign up to host a group training. If you have a support group, uh, a group of adoptive and foster parents that meet at your church. Um, if you think you can, if you don't have a formal one and maybe you just know a bunch of adoptive or foster parents that would really benefit from learning this, you can put together, you know, organize a group, reach out to me and I can come to you to do this training or we can do it online. Um, but it's really meant to be for a group. Um, so you can reach out to me to um, get one of those scheduled for your group. Um, or if you're just one person and you're like, you know, what, I just want this training. Are you offering one? Can I get on it? Can I get on the virtual? Um, there's not a virtual class scheduled right now, but I am planning on offering one in the fall. So stay tuned for when we get those on the calendar. And then, and then early next year in 2023, I'm going to begin offering our facets trainings because then I will be uh, a facilitator of the facets neurobehavioral model. And of course, we do not want you to miss out on becoming a member of our Hope for the FASD Journey online support community hosted by myself and the amazing Natalie Vecchione of FASD Hope Podcast. I just love saying Natalie's name, but together we bring a combined 40 years of adoptive parenting experience. We bring it to the table through our bi-monthly, so twice a month support group meetings online, a VIP conversation once a month, and our private Facebook group, which includes a weekly devotional video form uh, for encouragement. But you have to be a member of the community to access these vital resources. So to join the community and for all of our other training and resources, go to my website, justicefororphansny.org backslash training backslash FASD, or you can just click on the show notes for this episode and there's a link in there that'll take you right to those resources. JFO is also a platinum sponsor of FASD United's Run FASD, a virtual 5K. You can run, walk, or roll anytime, anywhere, anytime during the month of September. 
we are also hosting a local 5K in upstate New York. Uh, you can connect with myself and my family and Rebecca Tulu, an adult with FASD. Um, she's a runner. I'm a walker, but we're all meeting up together in Voorheesville, New York at the Rail Trail on September 9th. You can learn more about how you can be involved with Run FASD at runfasd.org. Um, also, I'm so excited to announce, I wish I had a drum roll insert here, but I won't, I won't make our producer do that. But my book, Orphans No More, A Journey Back to the Father, won a Golden Scroll Award for Memoir of the Year 2022. So I am so honored and so excited about that. You can grab a copy of Orphans No More, A Journey Back to the Father, Wherever you buy your books, if you would like a signed copy, go to my personal website, sandraflack.com. Also want to thank our Care Portal County sponsors that help us as an organization do what we do. Uh, so a big shout out to Trinuclear Corporation, Bishop Boundary Construction, National Bank of Kuksaki, and Coleman Insurance Agency. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode and encourage your fellow adoptive and fostering friends to listen as well. And find us and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at, at Justice for Orphans, as well as Sandra Flack. I am so grateful that you spent your valuable time with me today. I am thrilled to have you along for the journey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast, brought to you by Justice for Orphans. We hope you were encouraged today. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review and share it with your fellow foster and adoptive parent friends so they can be encouraged too. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. And check out our website for vital resources at justicefororphansny.org.